text this morning is Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. Luke 3, 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, I ask that uh, you give us eyes to see wonderful things in your word as we come uh, to this text, to these few verses as we consider Christ's baptism. God, I pray that you would make this practical in our lives, that you would... uh, Use it to change us, to make us more like you. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, grow our faith to a greater degree this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I thought it might be helpful. You guys always get these sermon notes in your bulletin. uh, To just help you know how I put that together and how I'm thinking through that. I know I've said this a few times. Uh, but usually you'll see a bold printed sentence at the top of the sermon notes. Uh, any good sermon has one driving point. At least that's what they taught me at seminary. And I always try to put that sentence as the, in a sense of application. So I'm asking you to lose all hope in any other so-called saviors to trust in God's Son. Now, the points underneath that are subpoints to support that point. And then I have uh, apply it, which is uh, we can learn a lot of interesting things from the text and say, oh, I never knew that. That's interesting. But the goal of preaching is that you show people how God's word is practical to your everyday life. So you should be able to ask, So what? In light of what we learned about this scripture text, what does that have to do with my life? Uh, So just as you're taking notes and looking at that, that gives you an idea of what uh, I'm trying to do uh, to help you follow the sermon and understand the text. Now, uh, this particular passage has a part one and a part two. We see the Trinity at work in this text. We see the Son being baptized. We see the Spirit coming down and resting upon Christ, uh, anointing Him in a sense. And then we have the Father speaking out. So this is a clear text that gives us uh, an example of the Trinity. And this week, we're going to look at the Son's baptism and the Spirit's anointing. And the main point of this text is actually what we're going to look at next week, which is the Father's declaration when He says, "Uh, this is my Son, with Him I am well pleased. And, And so next week, we're going to consider the climax of the text. But there's so much going on, it's worthy to look at. Christ's baptism in the Spirit's uh, anointing uh, this morning. 
this text helps us, I mean, and we're not going to dive into this, but I just want to point it out, uh, several uh, heresies on the Trinity uh, can be destroyed by uh, looking at this text. One of the most famous ones is called modalism, and it was made famous by a guy named Sibelius who uh, believed that there's one God who transforms into different modes. He'll go into father mode, he'll go into son mode, and he'll go into Holy Spirit mode. But it's just simply one God going into different modes, and that's a heresy. Uh, We see in Scripture that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. They're distinct persons that all have one in the same essence. So that the Son is truly God, and the Holy Spirit is truly God, and the Father is truly God. And we can see clearly from this text, the Son being baptized, the Holy Spirit resting on Him uh, like a dove, and the Father speaking out uh, from heaven. Another heresy that Luke's Gospel destroys at this point is, is some people see at Jesus' baptism the point where a normal man, Jesus, was adopted by God to become the Son of God. Now, we know that's not true from Luke's Gospel because Mary was told, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. He's been the Son of God before this point in time. Uh, All that said, uh, I want you to consider this text just practically in your life uh, by losing hope in any other Savior. What we see from this text is this is God's man. There is only one plan of salvation, and this is it. And it's highlighted in this text in so many different ways. Uh, In a famous hymn, there's a line that says, Prone to wander, O Lord, I feel it. Now, which hymn is it? Anybody know? Come thou fount of every blessing. All right, I couldn't think of that. Prone to wander, O Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is, this is just true for us. We are prone to wander away from God and trust in ourselves, to trust in our own righteousness, our own goodness, to trust in the different ways we try to numb ourselves from pain in our life from struggles in our life, we tend to go not to Christ, but to other places. We're prone to do it. If you tell me you're not, I'll call you a liar. We are. The Scripture warns us to be careful that we don't have an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. And it's a text like this that reminds me of how stupid it is 
when we go to other places to find our hope, our identity, and in, in our security. We really are prone to wander into anxious anxiety, into fear, into insecurity, into self-deception and blindness. What a crazy place to go when we don't have to. And one of the reasons it's so important that we gather together at least once a week and hear preaching out of God's Word is we need to remember reality. We need to remember what is true and how silly it is when we wander away from this God. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm 16. I got to look at this text with some friends earlier this week, and I'm just reminded at how uh, Psalm 16 demonstrates David when he's thinking clearly how he values God in comparison to those who don't. Here's what he says. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Or, or for in you I take refuge. That's smart. David's smart. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Now, that sounds extreme. Come on, David. You have no good apart from God. Here's what he's saying. David has maybe a lot of good things around him, but if you take God away, it's nothing. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now look at verse 4. Here's the fool. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Now if that's true then it is crazy to run after other gods in the midst of your day. I'm not talking about decide not to be a Christian. I'm talking about worry starts to plunge into your heart and do you go on the internet to figure out the solution? Do you, what, what's your default? Is God your refuge? Do you know that He's your good? And then look at verse 5. i got to finish verse 4. So those who run after other gods, their drink offerings of blood, I'll, I will not pour out nor take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You know, that's, that's a good illustration. We're feeling down. We have what? Comfort food. We have our stuff we go to. David says, you want to know my chosen portion? My cup? It's the Lord. Look at verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Well, how can that be, David? You're dying just like the rest of humanity. How can your flesh dwell secure? David had enemies looking to kill him all the time. Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Even if death comes to him, he's not worried. The Lord will not abandon him. And then look at verse 11. And if we would only believe this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. How much joy? Who in here wants joy? In the presence of God is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now let me just tell you something. Here's a universal truth. Everyone on this earth is seeking joy and pleasure. And the Word of God says, fullness of joy is found in the presence of God and pleasures forevermore, eternal pleasures, are found at His right hand. So, let me say it again. Lose hope in any other so-called saviors, idols, gods in your life. Psalm 16 says, you chase after them, your sorrows will multiply. Now that's clear. We can see it, but let's just admit that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that picking up my Bible in a stressful time and going to it and trying to figure out who my God is, is the best move and is the thing is that God is the one that you need in that moment. You'll naturally try to secure yourself first. And God in His grace lets you be unsatisfied in all your attempts so that you'll come to Him and be satisfied. So let's look at the text and let's consider the Son's baptism. Luke chapter 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, before Jesus had ever did a miracle for someone to see, before Jesus began to preach publicly, before anyone knew who he was, he comes to John, he leaves Galilee, he comes to the Jordan where John is baptizing, and he comes to be baptized by John. Now, we looked last week at John's baptism. Um, Luke 3.3 tells us that uh, 
John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Here's what John's baptism meant. It meant, Israel, you need to, in a sense, come back through the Jordan. You need to repent of your sins in order to be ready to receive your Messiah that's coming. John's job is to prepare the way for Christ. And so he preached a baptism of repentance. Those who were baptized were those who recognized we have rebelled in our hearts against God. We confess our sins and we need a Savior. We need God to forgive us for our sins. And when a good portion of Israel came out who thought they were good because they're Israelites and they were Jews, though their hearts were evil, John said, who told you to come to this baptism? You brood of vipers. You're sons of the snake. Why are you showing up for a baptism of repentance when you have no fruits of repentance? And so we're told later in Luke 6 that... Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers refused the baptism of John once they listened to what it was because they did not think they needed to repent. So, why would Jesus come to be baptized by John when Jesus has never sinned? This is a baptism of repentance. It's a good question to ask. It's actually the question John was asking when Jesus came to be baptized by Him. And there's four things I want to point out about Jesus' baptism, and I think it'll give us answers to those questions, help us understand the significance of this event. We're going to see the Son's baptism is an endorsement, it's an inauguration, it's an identification, and it's a fulfillment. Number one, Jesus' baptism is an endorsement of John's ministry and preaching. If Jesus comes to be baptized by John, he's saying, that boy is preaching what I want him to preach. He's got it right. I'm identifying with John's ministry. They're one in the same mission. In fact, at this baptism, this brings to the climax all of John's purposes as his purpose is to reveal who Christ is. You don't need to turn here, but I'll just read John 1.29 and you'll see how all of John's purposes climax at this moment. He wants to point to who the Christ is. We're told in John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. That's the purpose of John's baptism. 
that he might point to the Christ so that Israel would see who the Messiah is, the promised one. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. So John's already baptized him. He already saw the Spirit descend on him like a dove. And it seems like the next day, or very soon after, he sees Jesus. He says, that's the Lamb of God. This is the purpose of his ministry. That's the Savior. That's where hope is, Israel. That one right there. And so we see Jesus' ministry attached to John's ministry. They have the same mission. They have different jobs. John's to prepare the way. He's to preach. Jesus is the one whom he's preaching about. He's the one everyone's waiting for. Second, it's an inauguration of his public ministry. After this, Jesus begins to teach publicly. He begins to perform miracles. He begins to preach about the kingdom of God. Reveal that He is the promised one. John's ministry is complete when the inauguration happens. That's what He came to do. This is the Christ. We'll talk more about His inauguration when we talk about the Spirit's anointing in a little bit here. The third part of Jesus' baptism, or meaning of it, is that it's an identification with the sinful people He came to save. Why would the sinless Son of God receive a baptism of repentance? Why would He do that? In fact, this was uh, John's question in, in Matthew 3.14 tells us John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why did you come to me? You don't need the baptism of repentance. You don't need this. How about you baptize me, Jesus? But Jesus' purpose was to come and identify with sinners to come identify with those whom He is to save that will culminate at the end of His life, hanging on the cross, identifying to the point of your sins and my sins actually being on Him so that He can be our substitute. Isaiah 53.12 tells us, Therefore, this is 750 years before Christ is born, Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Isn't it amazing? The prophet I, 
Isaiah, before crucifixion was ever invented, speaks of the Messiah coming and identifying with sinners, bearing their sins on Himself. In Luke 12, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth. Would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. There's a baptism that he keeps pointing towards that he, in Mark's gospel, asks his disciples if they're able to carry. Mark 10.38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? He's saying, are you willing and able to drink the same cup? The disciples will be killed for their faith. All except John, who he instead suffered exile for his faith. But Jesus' baptism shows how He identifies with us as sinners in His purpose, His saving purpose. And fourth, and this is probably the most clear because we just are given the answer in Matthew 3, Jesus' baptism is a fulfillment of God's righteousness, of all righteousness. Matthew 3.14 John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So, Jesus said, I know you don't want to baptize me. John, but it's fitting that you do so. I need to fulfill righteousness. Here's what John MacArthur says about this. Fulfilling all righteousness, according to John 1.33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, oh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not getting the quote, quote right. Well, I know what MacArthur says. I'll put it in my own words. (laughs) He says that Jesus, in fulfilling all righteousness, God commanded John to go and do a baptism of repentance. Jesus fulfilled everything a good Israelite would fulfill. If there's a ministry going on, and there's a baptism that God commanded John to do, then Jesus was going to be a part of it. He was going to fulfill that ministry. The same way Jesus didn't need to participate in the Passover because He was sinful and He needed His sins to be covered. He participated in it to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, an example would be in Matthew... Uh, another example of this would be in Matthew 17, 24, when... 
uh, they came to Capernaum, and the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the tax? <laughs> so this is a tax that all Israelites would be taxed with for the temple. He said, yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take a toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. <laughs> so no king is taxing his sons. This is a temple tax, and, and Jesus is the son of God. He's basically saying, I don't have to pay this tax. But, however, he says, to not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and then you open his mouth and you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and yourself. So you see Jesus fulfilling all righteousness in the sense of he's doing what you ought to do, living under the law that God has provided. Uh, what significance does that have for you and me? Most of you might know this, but it's always good to be reminded. The reason why Jesus did not come at 33 years of age, but he was born as a baby, is because you and I have need of something very important. For ever to have a relationship with God, we have to not only have not sinned and not have sin against us, but we would have had to have lived a perfectly righteous life. Jesus came and lived His life on earth to create a gift for you and I, His righteousness, so that when you trust in Him, that's the gift you get. Next week, we're going to see the Father speak out and say, this is the one who I'm pleased with. No one, no man is getting into heaven unless you're identified with the only one God is pleased with. Somehow, Jesus has to take your place in line. He has to represent you before the Father. So thank God that He was even baptized, fulfilling righteousness for us. So, I know this seems cliche, but I don't know what else to say for application other than to repent. Repent. Why do I say repent? Because this is John's ministry. This is his preaching that Jesus is attaching his ministry to. What it means to follow Jesus is to repent. To have your sins forgiven is to repent. Repentance means to turn I was living a selfish life for myself, fulfilling whatever I want to do, but then I realize this life is an offense to my Creator, to my God. True repentance finds brokenness in the rebellion of their own hearts and their own idolatry. And 
says, is there any hope? And then they see Christ, what Christ has done, and they turn around and say, that's my life. That's my hope. Repent. Turn and trust the only Savior. When you do that, when God opens your eyes and you realize this really isn't providing life, only Christ can. The Bible says you're born again. The Spirit of God lives inside of you. And your taste buds change. The old things you used to do just can't taste like they used to. And the boring God that you were indifferent to or in rebellion to, now you have a taste for. So yes, as Christians, we still go over here as we're prone to wander, but as we eat up sin, we begin to get sick and say, this is not life. So a person saved when you repent and believe, and then one of the fruits of salvation is you'll continue doing that as your heart wanders. You'll remember what David remembered. God is my chosen portion and my cup. He is my hope. I'm not saying you lose your salvation every time you wander. What I'm saying is the fruit of salvation is repentance. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So is faith. So repent and trust Jesus, the only Savior. You realize when the Father speaks out of heaven and says it's this one, and when the Holy Spirit comes down and says it's this one, you might want to believe that He's the one. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. But I need to know weekly. I need to remember that no person can be my security. That no job can be my security. That no amount of compliments from man or woman can ever be my security. My cute little girls can never be my security. It's a poor foundation. They can be gone in a moment. They could grow up to be teenagers and say, I hate you and never want to see you again. There's one foundation that's secure. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not a pill that helps you live longer. It's Christ. So what does it mean as we now transition to the Spirit's anointing? What does it mean where He says in verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, Matthew, Mark, and John don't say in bodily form. Luke says the Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, 
They did not see a dove come down from heaven and flutter above Jesus' head. They saw the Holy Spirit in bodily form come down like a dove. Have you ever seen a dove land? It's one of the most beautiful things. You put it in slow motion as, as it descends down and lands. The Holy Spirit in a similar type manner supernaturally, obviously, came and rested upon Christ at His baptism. Bach says, what was visible was not a dove, but rather what was seen is compared to a dove. The manner of the Spirit's descent was like a way a dove floats gracefully through the air. So the Spirit's Descent here was merely a symbolic act indicating publicly his empowerment for Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus did not become the Christ at this moment. He became the Christ, the Messiah, when he took on flesh. This is merely symbolic. This is God. The Father in a moment saying, this is my Son. This is God the Holy Spirit saying, this is the One. Just so you don't miss it, this is the One. And we get to see how the Spirit empowered Christ's life as a true human being. He really was God and He really was man. And the Spirit was involved... In his miraculous conception, he was involved in every aspect of his life. Whenever God was going to do a special work through a person in the Old Testament, or many of the times, the Spirit is referenced. Um, Moses, in Numbers eleven seventeen, the 70 elders that Moses chose, here's what Numbers eleven seventeen says, so Moses, the work's getting too much for Moses. God's going to have him appoint elders. And here's what it says. And I'll take some of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So some of the Spirit I'm, that was on you, now I'm going to give it to these people to minister to the people of Israel. It was the same for Joshua, for Gideon, for Jephthah, for Samson, for Saul, for David, for Azariah, for Zechariah, for Ezekiel, and for Micah. MacArthur writes, All those men, however, were limited in their ability to be empowered by the Spirit by their sinful, fallen human natures. But since Jesus was God in human flesh, God gave him the Spirit without measure. John 3, 40, 34. So only of Jesus was it said that the Spirit's been given to him without measure. And this is demonstrated all throughout Luke. We're going to see how the Spirit works in his life. And there's two parts of this Spirit's anointing I want to look at. It's a prophetic pointer. 
the Bible told us to look for the anointing of the Spirit. Uh, in Acts 4.25, we're told this, Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your anointed, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You see the, you see the point? The great sin of Israel is that this is the Lord's anointed. He's the anointed one. This is the one Israel rejected. And Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 11, says this about the one who's to come. There shall come forth from a forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42.1 says, Behold, my servant with whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. Isaiah 61.1 The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. This is spoken of the Messiah. So as the dove comes, or as the Holy Spirit comes and descends like a dove and sets upon Christ, when he comes up out of the baptismal waters, it's flashing. This is the prophetic pointer. This, all the prophecies pointing to the Christ are here in Christ. The second part is this. This is a visible illustration of Christ's help. The Spirit is a helper. He's a helper for you and for me. And Christ lived His whole life on earth through the power of the Spirit. In Philippians 2, verse 5, here's what Paul says, "...have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So in the incarnation, when the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, he willingly emptied himself. All the benefits of being God the Son. These divine uh, privileges that He has and He holds, He lets go of as He comes down and becomes a man. He's still 100% God, but His personal prerogative in using His divine attributes, He let go and was willing to submit to the Father in every aspect of His life. Here's what MacArthur writes. 
Jesus voluntarily surrendered the independent use of His divine power. Think carefully. Jesus voluntarily surrendered the independent use of His divine power and submitted Himself completely to the will of the Father. And though His human nature was sinlessly perfect and nevertheless did not have supernatural power. Thus, Christ performed His miraculous deeds through the Spirit's power, so much so that to attribute His works to Satan is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It must be stressed that that in no way limits Christ's full deity and equality with the Father. But in the wonder and mystery of the Incarnation, He set aside the independent use of His divine attributes. Throughout Christ's entire life, including His development, sinless obedience, triumph over temptation, preaching, healing, casting out demons, death and the resurrection, His deity was mediated to His humanity by the Holy Spirit. Everything Christ did on this earth was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amazing. So what? What's, what's this have to do with us? Well, at least here, here's how I do in my mind. If Jesus, being a real human being, a sinless human being, needed to live his life by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's probably true that you and I won't do so good doing it on our own. The blessing that is promised to Abraham, the culmination of this blessing that's promised to the world is the Holy Spirit that comes to live inside those who trust in Him so that we can really have the exact same Holy Spirit living inside of us, guiding us. And so, walk with the Spirit. Before you were saved, you have one option. Walk with yourself. Do whatever you want. Live for your own kingdom, for your own glory. You get saved. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. Paul says, don't sow seeds to the flesh field, sow seeds to the spirit field. You have a choice. You can wake up in the morning and say, I'm going my way. Or you can wake up in the morning and say, Spirit, where are we going? Guide me. Lead me. So what does it mean to walk with the Spirit? That's cliche. We say that. I'm going to give you three things. Read and think the Spirit's words. Where are the Spirit's words? Right here. If you want an encounter with the Holy Spirit, read your Bible. He inspires every word in here. And you can go listen to Him talk to you every single day. Or you can walk according to the flesh. Read the words of the Spirit. Think the words of the Spirit. Meditate on it. Memorize it. This is God. 
Don't follow your heart. Tell your heart to follow the Spirit. The Bible tells us we have control of our heart. And we need to guide it in God's way. In the Spirit's way. So read and think the words of the Spirit. Then live in accord with them. Live how the Spirit tells us to live. Well, what does the Spirit tell us to do? Tells us to follow His Word. It shows us in here His Word. Here's how John describes the Spirit's ministry. That's going to be a long sermon. But I'm going to Him who sent me. This is Jesus. Then none of you ask me, where are you going? Jesus is about to die on the cross and go to heaven. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They've lived with Jesus for three years. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that you go away. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send Him to you. And when He comes, He'll convict the world of sin. That's one thing the Spirit does. And righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they don't believe in Me. You realize no one will trust in Jesus till they're convicted of sin? The Spirit comes to convict, make them utterly desperate so that they look for a Savior. He came to convict of sin. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, righteousness just went up into heaven. What are we going to do now? Well, luckily, the Holy Spirit helped the apostles finish the New Testament so we perfectly have the account of Christ live and we can see our righteousness in Christ. We can see it in the Gospel. And concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged, the Holy Spirit comes to help us realize that we actually will see a judge And if we really believe we're going to see a judge, we really believe we're sinful, and we really believe that there's our righteousness, well, then a person will cling to Christ savingly. Jesus says, you're going to be sad when I go. It'll be better for you. It'll be better to your advantage. What a gift to have the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. And I think we'll stop there. Next week, we're going to look at the Father's testimony about His Son. My prayer is is that this Christ, that God gave you enough sense as we looked at this text to really believe that's where my hope is. You say, how can I get in on that? Trust in Christ. Repent and believe. What does that look like? Lose hope over here and realize that's your only hope. Grab onto it. That's faith. Clinging to your only hope. Father, thank You. Thank You. That You didn't leave it for us to figure out who the Savior is or how salvation works, but You gave us Your Word. You gave us prophets that prophesied that He would die on the cross. You gave us prophets that would prophesy He'd be marked off by the Holy Spirit that would rest upon Him. Thank You, Lord, 
for being so clear in pointing us to our only hope. Help us cling to Him. In Jesus' name, amen.